Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. The way in which women and girls are often valued in society and praised and accepted is through their appearance. Beauty becomes a source of currency for women and girls. Having those moments of gratitude for your body starts to shift the way in which you interact with your body and how you then start to value it for so much more than just what it looks like. Our appearance is a way that we can express our identity and play and have creativity in who we are. But it's problematic when we feel like we have to do that. The tools, the apps, the filters are designed to help us conform to society's standards of beauty ideals. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. This week, we are extremely fortunate to be speaking with an esteemed research psychologist with an international reputation who uses science to improve body image, champion appearance diversity, and support women and girls. Her strategies help to improve body image within communities, businesses, and policy settings. With a PhD in health psychology, she works very hard and passionately to create environments that accept diversity in appearance and support particularly girls and women to live free from the constraint of appearance concerns. At the Centre for Appearance Research, she leads a team of researchers investigating psychological and social influences on body image, including those from social media, advertising, friends and family, and the development and evaluation of digital and face-to-face body image interventions. Her research is published in over 60 peer-reviewed papers and book chapters and has been notably featured in the New York Times, BBC, Time, Forbes magazines and her teaching case studies at the Harvard Business School and School of Public Health. The evidence-based programmes that she has brilliantly co-created and evaluated have been delivered to 30 million young people in partnership with global youth organisations and businesses, including a long-standing academic partnership with the Dove Self-Esteem Project. Notably, she has helped develop the first evidence-based Girl Scouts Global Badge programme, Free Being Me, which was implemented in 136 countries. She's skilled in science communication and regularly works with media brands, agencies, and non-profit organizations, including Unilever, UNICEF, NHS England, Cartoon Network, YMCA, the World Organization, Association for Girl Guides and Girl Scouts, to name a few. Her industry consultancy projects have transformed media landscapes to promote diversity and improve mental health. Impressively, she has also served as an advisor to the British Government Equalities Office, Transport for London and Parliamentary Select Committees. She is a Fellow of the Academy for Eating Disorders and serves on the Editorial Board for Body Image. There is a wealth of insight and information waiting for us today, 
from our most excellent guest that I cannot wait to dive in and inquire more insightful knowledge from. So settle in and do join me for this extremely necessary, eye-opening and fascinating conversation with the wonderful Professor Philippa Diedrichs. Hello, Philippa. A massively warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for taking out the time from your busy schedule to be here on the Elevate podcast. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. How are you doing? It's been quite a year for everyone. I think, um, you know, you look like you've been in sunshine, though. Are you keeping well and things okay for you or where you are? We're very lucky. I'm based in Bristol in the UK and we've had a few days of sunshine over a long weekend, which is really lovely. And things um, after a long lockdown over winter are just starting to open up. So it's been really nice to reconnect with friends in real life and go to cafes and have coffee and just, you know, be outside, which has been really lovely. Yeah, I bet. There's so much I really want to discuss with you, especially given the challenges of this past year that have presented to our young people particularly. But firstly, I thought it might be interesting for us to get to know a little bit about you and what led you into the field of work that you're in now. As I've mentioned in my introduction, your impressive credentials and achievements really illustrate your drive in this area. So clearly, I wonder what drove your passion for psychology and specifically body confidence and image. It's been a topic that I've been fascinated in uh, about for a long time. I can remember very clearly moments in my childhood when I was growing up about comments that were made about my weight and appearance. Um, but also then, obviously, when I was an adolescent girl, a teenage girl, I can remember just very much how myself and my friends were very conscious of the way that we looked um, mm. and how it was a very normal thing for us to talk about how we didn't like our bodies uh, and at the same time, I think it was around that point where we were starting to hear more discussions in the media about the role of the fashion industry and the beauty industry in particular, and the lack of representation and diversity um, and how that might be impacting people's self-esteem. So uh, interest from an early age. And then in terms of psychology, uh, I was at university, didn't really know what I wanted to do, took loads of subjects and really enjoyed psychology. And since then, my approach has just been really following what I find um, really interesting and what I'm passionate about. So I reconnected with the kind of the research and the work in terms of body image and eating disorders. And that's ultimately what I did my PhD in coming full circle to those conversations when I was a teenager and my PhD focused on trying to disrupt that basically and looking at what are the, what's the impact of, um, you know, brands and businesses showcasing greater diversity of body sizes and appearances in the media and then since then that's what my career has all been about really about supporting girls and women um, to feel good about themselves and to not be held back in life by worrying about their appearance and doing that by trying to change some of the social structures and systems that are out there that make it difficult for us to do that. Mm, fascinating and so timely and and so grateful really I think having a young teen daughter myself everything you're saying reminds me of what it was like for us to be teenagers and then add the new level of complexity to the childhood that they're experiencing plus the recent pandemic I couldn't have been more grateful to have this introduction and have your support so thank you so much for sharing it all um, as I said earlier you've got a number of achievements that are remarkable you've got a variety of work in this area and most recently the Dove Self-Esteem Project, a massive leading brand in the industry of image manipulation, is tackling the issue of digital distortion once again with this release of a new film called The Reverse Selfie. 
it's cleverly displays exactly how far retouching apps can distort reality and how young girls are digitally self-distorting their appearances for social media. And for those of our listeners, possibly in Singapore or elsewhere, who haven't seen this reverse selfie film, I urge you, it's really worthwhile watching and I will link it into the show notes. Um, it's in genius. And maybe because it's incredibly confronting, I'm not sure, but it's been shot so thoughtfully. The powerful imagery provides us all with a jolt of what it's actually happening to so many of our young girls. It's rooted within the research from the Dove Self-Esteem Project, and it undoes the emotional and physical stages of posing a selfie, highlighting how the editing tools once only available to professionals can now be accessed by young people at the touch of a button without any regulation, rather than on models on set. It's girls in their bedrooms filtering away their identities. Now, this really struck a chord with me. And I wondered if you could share your involvement and how your work was instrumental in the campaign for us. Yeah. So I've been really fortunate. I've been working with the Dove Self-Esteem Project now for eight years. Um, and in addition to the, all the tools that we create, to help parents and teachers and youth mentors to support the young people in their lives to have body confidence. Um, one of the other things that Dove Self-Esteem Project and Dove's really committed to is really um, trying to raise awareness about the issue of body confidence and how far reaching it is and how many you know, girls it impacts with you know, over 50% of girls around the world not experiencing body confidence. And one of the insights, um, obviously, which has, has come up in recent years is the impact of social media. So um, I worked closely with Dove. My role is often to bring the science to the work that they do um, and to integrate the evidence base of what we know from psychology research um, and practice into their campaigns and into their tools. And I also consulted with them on the global research that they did, which was really looking at what are girls doing when they're taking selfies? Why are they taking them? What are the processes that they're going through? Uh, and from that research, we found that 80% of girls are taking selfies and posting selfies with the aim of receiving comments and likes, and so receiving validation from other people. 50% of the girls don't feel um, comfortable posting photos without photo editing. Um, and the majority of them are feeling pressure from social media influencers to present a really perfect version of themselves on social media. So I think, as you say, what the reverse selfie film does really nicely in such a short space of time is really just show how sophisticated um, the girls are at creating and publishing these images online of themselves, um, but also just how far away we can move from the reality of what we actually look like in our everyday selves to what we post on social media. And, you know, one, that was once in the, within the realm of just professionals when, you know, it was traditional mass media. But now we all have the tools, the apps, the filters and the access to be able to do that ourselves and showing that very young girls from a very young age, they're very good at doing it. And um, so just really carefully thinking about then what is the impact of all of that? And how young are the girls that you're finding in, through your research that get access to these apps? Well, you know, when we do the research, it's a little bit tricky because legally you're, most of the social media platforms and apps, you're meant to be 13 years and over to, to download them and use them. Um, and so certainly, yes, girls as young as 13, but anecdotally, the conversations that we have with, um, you know, with pre-adolescent girls, um, as well as some of the girls that were actually in the reverse selfie film, I've had some conversations with them and they've all said collectively they were doing this a lot, you know, a lot younger than 13. Um, so we're thinking, you know, I, I, I don't know to put a precise 
age on it, but from a very early age, this is happening. Um, and it's something that they talk about a lot um, and that they share tips and hints on how to do it and what to post. So yeah, it, 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 it's, it's around from a very young age now. And it's very normalized. It's quite worrying, isn't it? And self-esteem has been a concern for young people, especially with females, long before social media. I know that's true. However, this recent initiative that Dove and your work is combating got a very specific social media angle to it, which is the filters and the editing apps. And your mission to expose how these are distorting the ways that girls really look in an attempt to meet unrealistic standards, uh, which none of us can really achieve in real life. It's been really eye-opening. I wonder if you could talk to where this external validation for young girls stems from and why we have this need for us to make ourselves look like something other than ourselves because, you know, the, the perfect pout or the perfect eyelash or the, I, I, I mean, it just doesn't stop. It's, it's not one thing, right? It, well, I think, you know, as human beings, our fundamental drivers for connection and to be loved and to be liked by other people. And that's the case whether you're a teenage girl or whether you're our age. But what we've seen in society and culture, and this is for many years now, much, you know, much earlier than the rise of social media is that the way in which women and girls are often valued in society and praised um, and accepted is through their appearance and beauty becomes a source of currency for women and girls. Um, and so although, you know, we may have other attributes like our intellect, our qualities, our personal qualities, our achievements, fundamentally, we're still very much valued by how we look. And that is our currency as we move through the world. Whereas for, men and boys, they can get masculine capital through other ways, through wealth, through being funny, through their achievements at work, for example. So we still live in a society and a culture, despite the fact that, you know, we may have greater gender equality in some respects, but very much, you know, we're we still valued by the way that we look. Uh, and so I think this kind of, um, the obsession or the focus on filter, filters and selfie editing is a, not just another form of self-presentation that's available to us now. So previously it may be the way in which you chose to dress or the way in which you chose to do your makeup and hair. Those are all still part of it, but it's also now it's an image that you create and you are on display not just for the people that you see in everyday life, but the people that see you online as well. And so I think there's this tendency to um, want to look your best. And by that, I mean in air quotes, because best really is what society tells us the expectation is of how we should look but also to seek that validation and comments and I think the other important thing to point out here is we often talk about social media and all of these things as though it's all inherently bad but actually what the research shows is that genuine connection over social media and genuine interaction um, can be a really positive thing and it can reduce feelings of self-isolation and low mood, like what we've seen over the previous year where technology, social media, video conferencing platforms have allowed us to connect with friends and family when we haven't otherwise been able to see them. But when it becomes problematic is when you are just engaging in that, presenting an image of yourself and nothing else about you and selfies are often very passively posed you know, it's often of just a body part or just of your face. It's not what you're doing in life or anything like that. It's a very objectifying experience. And then you're trying to judge how, you know, good you look by how many comments and likes you get. And that's when it's problematic. And then finally, just the other piece to this is the idea of appearance. You know, we can, I don't think what we're saying here is that 
playing with your appearance is bad or it's inherently bad, you know, to use makeup or to, you know, be engaged in fashion. Our appearance is a way that we can express our identity and play and have creativity in who we are. But it's problematic when we feel like we have to do that with, you know, as I said, um, 80% of girls, uh, 50% of girls feel they don't look good enough without photo editing. That's when it becomes problematic. And also when the tools, the apps, the filters are designed to help us conform to society's standards of beauty ideals, that's when it becomes problematic. Yeah, of course. I mean, you've touched on a few things and it does lead me to my next point, which is social media does get a massive negative uh, beating doesn't it and like you say as a teacher as well in classrooms I've seen the brilliant ways in which you can use you know uh, social media and the internet just generally to create some great experiences for children um I guess my question then is how do you think we can help young people balance the negative impact on self-belief with the creative innovation sides of which help with self-expression with help with things that allow children to be more creative in life really what are the ways in which we can either advise parents teachers or speak to the girls themselves on where we know now this is a red flag this is something that isn't you're not using it the way that it should be used for your mental health one of the crucial skills that we want to help young people develop is to develop media literacy skills. And by that, I mean helping them to develop their critical thinking around social media and what they're consuming. So instead of just passively consuming and absorbing whatever is seen, to develop that critical lens to be like, oh, here's this, you know, here's an image of a post from a social media influence that I follow. Why is she promoting that particular product or that particular brand? Why did that brand choose her? What is the message that they're trying to send by posting this? What went on to create that image, which of course is what the reverse selfie film does so much, is it can be very, when you're very quickly scrolling through social media, you're often not consciously really thinking too much about the images that you see. You may look at an image for like 10 seconds and forget to realise that actually that social media influencer spent a whole day creating a photo shoot and thousands of images with a team of people to get that image. So really helping them to develop media literacy skills just to have that critical lens when they're consuming social media because also once you start to see what goes into creating those images, it then means that it's not a realistic thing for us to compare ourselves to. So you know, it's not realistic for me. I just woke up, you know, got out of bed and made coffee half an hour ago to then compare myself to a social media influencer when I'm having my coffee this morning and think, oh, why don't I look like that? And it's like, well, you know, that's their job as well to look like that. So developing those media literacy skills. Um, also, I think what's really important is getting to know the functions of the app. And I know that this can sometimes be a scary thing for parents, although I think increasingly people of our age are getting better at using them. But there are certain functions on some of the apps like block, like muting, that either don't make you feel good about yourself or if they're engaging in bullying behaviours. Sometimes, you know, particularly for adolescents, it can be quite a big deal to unfollow someone on social media that is seen as, you know, something that might've been equivalent to not sitting with someone at lunchtime. So that's really important to use those, use those functions as well. And then also unfollow people that don't make you feel good about yourself. Yeah. That's an important message. Even for adults, I think it's important for us all to remember that. I know there's 
some greater account. So you can filter your feed as well, can't you? You can curate it. So you can follow people who are body positive and do lots of work on exposing Insta versus reality. I think that's been a great little trend that I've... Well, also, like, yes, you can follow body positive influences, but just following lots of different people from around the world, that's one of the beautiful things about social media is that we now get exposure to all different people from different cultures, from different backgrounds, different professions, different interests that we can learn from. And that's at the tip of our fingers. So creating a really diverse feed social media feed and one that is uplifting and makes you feel good, that's been shown to be really beneficial for body confidence as well. And a lot of these tips and hints that we've been talking about, we've actually put together in a guide called the Confidence Kit with the Dove Self-Esteem Project that I helped them to write. And it's just full of tips and hints about how to have these conversations with young people. I remember, honestly, I remember very clearly when I became a mum for the first time that I don't know if other brands, or people know the brand White Company, but I would open a White Company catalogue and I would think that my life was going to be this perfectly <laughs> neat, white. I do. I really think, oh, there it is, like the TP, the children are quietly playing in there and I'm just going to shape my coffee looking like a million dollars in my beautiful cashmere robe. Never, never has that achieved that image. But it's it was a nice dream to have, or possibly one that really played with my mental health. Um, so going back to the idea of confidence and self-esteem, confidence is, is one of the first superpowers that I work on with girls in the Elevate Mentorship Program. And I think uh, having body confidence is a big part of how girls view themselves. And it, But what I wanted to ask you really is, do you feel with the work that you've done that it's affecting girls younger and younger these days i know i started teaching well a while ago now um to over you know 15 20 years ago and i can't recall when i first entered a junior school if having conversations like the ones we're having today are happening at the age of eight nine ten yeah i think um it's from a the academic research perspective it's a little bit tricky to tell because we don't have that many studies which have tracked young people over decades of the ones that we do though what we're seeing is that it's a trend for the issue of body image and low body confidence to be fairly stable, if not getting slightly worse over time. So it's it's definitely an issue that's been around for a long, long time. In terms of the conversations about it, though, I would agree that I think that is something that that is more recent, that we're seeing, um, you know, a lot more discussion and a lot more acknowledgement that this is an important issue. And I think that that's, you know, partly because the research just time and time again now is telling us that, you know, it, it depends what research you look at, but it, least over half of girls experience low body confidence, but we see rates up to 80 to 90%, depending on which groups of girls that you ask, where they're feeling ashamed of their bodies, they're not proud of their bodies, and they wish that they could change their bodies. And why that's actually important, because sometimes I think the issue of body confidence can be trivialized and it can be seen as an issue of vanity or an issue for silly young girls and women. But actually what we see really clearly is several decades of research now, which shows in really robust scientific research that when women and girls experience low body confidence, it impacts all key areas of their lives. So they're more likely to have low self-esteem, experience depression, experience anxiety, um, be at risk for engaging in substance misuse, um, taking up smoking or not wanting to quit smoking, disordered eating behaviours, through to behaviours like not putting your hand up in the classroom 
not giving an opinion, not going to the doctor. And Dove's research shows that eight out of 10 girls stop doing important life activities like that because they're worried about how they look. And then really crucially, what we're seeing in the research more recently is that girls who have low body confidence and have internalized this idea that they're just objects to be looked at by other people, they're less likely to speak up and challenge a lot of the oppressive systems and structures in society that perpetuate this. So they're less likely to engage in gender activism or gender equality activism and say that this isn't okay. So we're seeing an impact on all these key areas of their lives. And then crucially, I think what's really important to recognize is that with appearance ideals and beauty ideals and body image, it relates to issues like racism, like colorism, like classism, because so many of the appearance ideals and stereotypes reinforce other forms of prejudice as well. And cumulatively, these um, marginalise different groups of people even more because, you know, what's considered feminine, what's considered beautiful, all of those things perpetuate a lot of these other prejudice and stereotypes. When you travel around the world, you see beauty in different forms and different... I find it shocking that the representation of beauty even now isn't as diverse as as it should be. And I... And also we've been doing research with Dove in um, lots of different countries, most recently in Indonesia, Brazil, and India as well. And I think, you know, although um, conversations like this are happening in certain societies, they're not necessarily happening everywhere. And so the research that we've been doing with Indonesian girls, for example, it's not really culturally or socially acceptable to talk about bodies, to talk about puberty, to talk about body confidence with you know, your friends, let alone with your parents. And so thinking about where they go to get information is really challenging. So we've been creating some websites and online tools for that. But that's also a lot of the research that has happened on body confidence has often come from Western English-speaking high-income countries. We are now getting pockets of research from different places around the world. And overall, what it's consistently saying is this is an issue in most cultures and contexts around the world but there's different levels of conversation and critical thinking about the issue, depending on where you are situated in the world. Yeah, that's such an important point. I hadn't even thought about how many other girls are impacted just because they have no one to talk to about it. Like that's, that's massive too. Not here to point fingers, but to examine looking or looking at some root causes at the alarming data that we've just discussed and the evidence around issues that you're working on. Raising awareness through the campaign, such as the Dove one, is obviously very important. And I hope conversations like the one we're having today will begin to shift some of the statistics that you're seeing in the right direction. However, I'd still like to know out of just curiosity, really, given your vast amount of expertise and field of appearance-based prejudice and discrimination with social media and advertising, is it important to call out and make those in advertising and use of image manipulation responsible and held accountable for these falsified standards of beauty that have impregnated so much of our society's beliefs around what we think is beautiful. Yeah, 100%. It is. Yeah. Okay. It is. There are like vast <laughs> industries that are profiting from this dissatisfaction and have had done for a long, long time now. Yes, it's great that, you know, as parents like and parents and adults were talking about this and how we can support the young people in our lives, we need to be having those conversations. But ultimately, if things are going to change, we need to have businesses, brands and industry, social media platforms on board with this and making positive changes. And it is their responsibility to create a safe environment for young people. Um, and I think 
that's where things like social media become really fun because previously it was really hard for us to have a direct conversation with a brand or a business. Now with um, social media, we have tools for activism in our back pocket where we can tweet at or tag companies and businesses where we see things that we don't like or if they're not showcasing enough representation. And that can create momentum and they're very carefully checking all of those accounts and getting that feedback. Equally, a bit like parenting, we can praise the companies or when they're doing something that we like to see um, because I think that that's really important as well, some positive reinforcement. But 100%, there needs to be greater accountability and responsibility. And I'd like to see that coming from the businesses and platforms themselves. Um, but also increasingly, we're starting to see governments in various countries around the world starting to scrutinise social media platforms a bit more and trying to hold them more accountable for the responsibility that they have of this mass influence on society as well. So, yes, I think it's really important. And, of course, there are going to be some businesses and brands which fundamentally, I would say, just shouldn't exist um, in terms of, you know, what their product offerings are. Um, and there are some in the beauty industry. So when we look at, you know, skin fairness products and, um, you know, that is a whole other um, area where fundamentally, I think, arguably, should that even exist? My opinion is no, it's perpetuating colonialism and racism. And there will often be the argument, well, these products sell really well. There's a demand. That's what we're giving consumers what they want. Um, but just because people are buying it and buying into it doesn't mean that that's okay. If we use that argument, we would never see social change or any change for equality because you need to disrupt and there needs to be thought leadership in this space as well from businesses and brands too. Yeah, I, I mean, have to agree with you. And I'm a woman, a grown woman, who gets caught up in a conversation with someone who says to me, oh, have you thought about getting this lightning cream? And I think, goodness, whoa, I hadn't even thought I needed a lightning cream for what, you know, and then this, and it, the fact that I even contemplate engaging in this conversation, I can only imagine what kind of messaging is going through a young person's mind if, if this is happening for someone with an adult brain. Girls, they may be like having that same reaction as what you just described, but also you might not, you just, you just absorb these messages and be like, oh yeah, maybe I should. Um, I can remember comments being made to me about my weight from a very young age and this idea that, you know, you should always be like dieting or trying to lose weight. I don't remember critically questioning that back then. I just internalized that as like, oh, okay, yes, that, you know, that's something that I should do. And, you know, no, and that's a good thing because then I'll be liked more and I'll be all of those things. So yeah, I, I think it is really challenging and that is why, we can't just rely on girls and women to do all the legwork here and to be responsible for changing this. Yes, we want, you know, and I would encourage everyone listening to kind of be tweeting and tagging brands and businesses and things like that. Um, and also having these conversations with the girls in your life. But ultimately we need to start seeing businesses and brands doing that. But that's also sometimes, you know, there may be women um, listening to this podcast now who are in positions of power in those companies or thinking about the subtle ways in each of our workplaces that we either perpetuate this or could disrupt it, even just through the conversations that happen, although we're not necessarily doing it now when we're, most of us are working from home. But what are the conversations we have, you know, when we log on to our Zoom call about the way that we look and how that's subtly kind of reinforcing this pressure and this emphasis on how we look rather than, you know, what interesting things we have to say today or the work that we've got to get done. Yeah, and the amount of actual increase in people wanting to get 
ways of helping the way they look on Zoom calls. I was struck with a conversation recently. So I, I don't spend that much time on Zoom, but I know people that do. And they started to question whether they needed to have help with their frown lines or, you know, when the filters came on to Zoom, I, I was absolutely gobsmacked because we were then reinforcing the fact that you need to look a certain way to be able to do your job properly, which is, yeah, of course not what well, we Well, I think the thing with um, video conferencing now is when we were used to having conversations, we weren't seeing ourselves at the same time. No. Whereas you know, I'm talking to you, but, you know, if I look up, I can see a little square with my face in it. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so we're not used to kind of, but now we can carefully monitor how we're appearing at the same time as having these conversations. Um, yeah, it, it, it's not a bit great. mind-boggling. No, not great. So let's talk about the mind then um, and the power of it. It's something that I'm, again, working quite hard at to get the science behind things because I don't think, especially pre-adolescent girls and adolescent girls, they don't really necessarily want to be told what to do. But if we illustrate the power behind the science and ideas such as growth mindset, changing neurological pathways with positive self-talk, for example, that's one of my the big ones that I start the program off with. But I am I right in thinking that even in your world psychology, there is something we call cognitive dissonance that might work in parallel uh, with what I'm saying here. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit for us and maybe talk us through how parents might be able to use that at home. Yeah. So cognitive dissonance, it's a, it's a psychological, psychological theory. It's been around since the 1950s. Um, and it's basically, in a nutshell, it's that as human beings, um, we don't like to be hypocrites. So we don't like to say and do things that contradict our beliefs and what we think and feel. And when we do that, it makes us feel uncomfortable, which is the state of what we call cognitive dissonance. We also, as human beings, don't like to feel uncomfortable. So we want to minimize any discomfort. So what we actually have a tendency to do is we will change our thoughts and beliefs to match what we're saying and doing. And so psychologists have used this as a technique for many years now for a range of social issues um, so, and, and, and health issues. So body image. It's also being used in terms of safe sex behaviours, trying to encourage people to engage in recycling and a variety of things. And so ultimately, it's a tool that we use um, in some of the Dove workshops and it gets used by um, some other great programs called The Body Project, which is a body confidence program. Um, and essentially what you do is you encourage um, people to um, engage in a critique of these societal standards like what we've been doing. So you could say, you know, one of the classic activities we do in some of the dub materials is we will start off by saying, what does society tell us the perfect looking woman looks like, for example? And then, you know, you create this huge long list of all these different attributes. It's very quick to do. We can all bring that to mind really quickly. Um, and then, of course, we say, well, this isn't the perfect looking girl. This is the appearance ideal. This is what society tells us we should look like. And then you start to think, what are the costs associated with pursuing the appearance ideal? And by cost, or what are the downsides? Um, and so by asking those questions, and then they'll start to say things like, well, you know, some people will have low self-esteem because they feel like they can't match it. We spend a lot of money trying to achieve that ideal. Um, it can also affect our friendships because they can become really competitive. Um, it might affect me at school because I'm spending so much time worrying about what I look like, not focusing on my studies. And then you engage in questions like, well, what would you tell your friends about why it's not fair to compare yourself to someone on social media. And then they would say things like, well, I would say it's not fair to compare yourself because those images are heavily edited. So you can see by asking these questions, I'm eliciting statements that are kind of critical of these pressures and stereotypes. 
And what we see is the more in which we have these discussions um, and think critically about it, but also share that with other people. So talk about it with friends and family, our own beliefs will match up in alignment with what we're saying and doing. Ah, okay. So it is similar to the idea of having a chat with yourself in the self-talk way, but making it vocal and but also having that conversation with other people as well. Love it. Okay. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was in terms of helping young people. I think there's a great uh, bit that you speak about with your in your conversation with Stacey Solomon about body functionality and gratitude. And I think this is a really great uh, practical way and a really nice message for chunk, for families and, and young children to have. Would you like to share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So this is actually a technique that was developed by one of my colleagues, Dr. Jessica Oliva. Um, she's an amazing psychologist and body image researcher at Maastricht University in the, in the Netherlands. And essentially she has developed and tested this technique, which has been shown to be very effective in terms of improving body confidence. And it's really about, you know, as we've been talking about there's a lot of emphasis placed for women and girls on how we look. Um, and that's what we start to value our bodies for is this, you know, object to be looked at by other people. But really what we find to be powerful for body confidence is focusing on the functionality of our bodies. So fun focusing on what our bodies actually allow us to do and their functions. So this could be our senses. So they, you know, it may allow us to see and may allow us to smell the feeling of touch. It could also be our internal systems, the way in which our immune system, you know, can fight off illness or the way in which when we sleep, our body repairs itself through to things like movement. So that or, or my arms, they allow me to hug and lift up my nephew. Um, my hands allow me to create art. Um, my face allows me to smile at people. So just all of these amazing things that our body can do. And so this technique is really just about having a... Um, every now and then being grateful for our body. In Jessica's work, she focuses on brief writing exercises, so journaling for 10 minutes about the things that you're grateful for, that your body allows you to do. But it could also just be a mental check when you wake up in the morning, when you're brushing the teeth, looking in front of the mirror to say, um, I'm grateful, thank you to my body for getting me through today. Or you know, I'm grateful that my legs are gonna allow me to go for a walk outside in a moment or I'm grateful that my mind is going to allow me to do this amazing work today. And just having those moments of uh, gratitude for your body starts to shift the way in which you interact with your body and how you then start to value it for so much more than just what it looks like. Oh, isn't that so empowering? I absolutely love it. I think it's such a brilliant thing. And I think it's useful across all ages, actually, because I've started doing that when I am in a downward dog stretch. think, oh, I'm so grateful my hamstrings have allowed me to get to that place. And then even sometimes when my body is really tired and I get into bed and I'm like exhausted, I like think oh, I'm so grateful that my body like, you know, got me through all of that today of whatever I did that day. Or for me, I love to travel. I used to, but I'm grateful that my body kind of moves me around the world and lets me see all of these different things and put ups with puts up with what I put it through really. Yeah, it's so true. I think that's important. I always like to ask my guests who their role models are and if they've changed when they were younger from when they were younger. Wow, that's such a good question. I'd have to say one of my uh, role models is my mom. Um, my mom, Denise, she is um, a phenomenal woman who is incredible. She's an amazing listener and just a really, you know, huge support to me. And it's because of her that I feel confident to do the work that I do today. Um, so she's a huge role model. 
I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of amazing women in my life. Um, one of my, uh, the, the other person I would say is Professor Nicola Rumsey, who set up the Centre for Appearance Research where I work. And she's been an incredible role model and mentor to me in terms of the work that she's done, which her whole career has been dedicated to promoting acceptance of appearance diversity. But really importantly, she is a huge support and mentor and champion for other women in research. And I think that that's so important and something that I try to now do with my own team is to really support women in the workplace and girls as well to do the things that they want to do. So, yeah, they're two standouts for me. Oh, amazing. Yeah, love it. Love listening to these stories. I think they're always so enlightening and nice to hear where you draw inspiration from and how people can, women supporting women can make such a big difference. And if you could go back to your teen self today and whisper something to yourself, what might you tell yourself knowing what you know now? I think I would tell her that you're okay as you are. You're absolutely fine as you are. That, that's what I would say because I think if you could just have that sense of feeling you're okay and you're worthy as you are, that, that would be you know a really good starting place as well as get excited for all the amazing things that are to come. Yes. Yeah. Not to be so fearful. There's so much to look forward to, isn't there? Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Again, I think the confidence kit that you've developed with the Delft Self-Esteem Project is a wonderful resource. I'm going to mention it again because Dove is on a mission to help 250 million kids with self-esteem education by 2030, I love it, making it the largest provider of self-esteem and body confidence education in the world. So all links to be able to download that are provided in the show notes. Refer to them to get more information on how you can use these brilliant resources with your girls. Whether you're a teacher, you're a mom, a parent, a carer, get these conversations going as early as possible is what I would say, really. Have you got anything to add to that, Philippa? No, I just don't be scared of having these conversations. We've all got to start somewhere. And also the other thing is we know that when we have these conversations, it benefits our own body confidence as well. So focusing on our own feelings of self-worth and our own comfort with our body is not only going to be beneficial for you, but it's going to be beneficial for, you know, the young people in your life as well, to be, for them to be able to see you model that. Oh, you are such a wonderful source of inspiration. How lucky are the girls to have your incredible research and insight to be able to help them maneuver all of this crazy stuff that exists in teenage years anyway. But if we can help them feel good about themselves, then, hey, we're, you know, onwards and upwards. (laughs) Well, and thank you for the work that you do. And thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from the Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.